If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Revelation, please. Last book of the New Testament. So one of my goals in sabbatical was to uh, read through Revelation, study it, figure out what I believe about it. I got to chapter 3, okay? (laughs) So I need some more time on that. Uh, I mean, I have my ideas and stuff like that, and and I know what I was taught growing up. I know what I was taught in seminary and all that, and... and, uh, you know, if I had to, you know, like, if my life depended upon it, I could tell you what I think it is. But I, I, when it comes to the book of Revelation, there are a lot of parts to it that I, I, I hold pretty loosely about it. Um, but what I will say this, though, is that uh, when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, you need to understand the big picture here. First of all, what was happening, this is about 90 AD, okay? John the Apostle is uh, the last remaining of the 12 uh, disciples, 12 apostles. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, okay? And so he is, uh, he's, he's, he's there, he's, he's getting a revelation. But you have to understand what was going on during that time is that there was intense persecution that was coming up. I mean, the church was going through a lot of persecution. If you study through uh, history, you see that this was happening. I believe the main reason why uh, Revelation was given was because uh, the Christians, particularly John and, and the rest of the churches, they were going through difficult times and things, and they're, they're starting to wonder, like, okay, wait a minute here, Jesus said he was coming back, and this hasn't happened yet. And, and if you study the letters, you, you, you'll see uh, the, the epistles in the New Testament, you'll see that there's, there's themes, that particularly in Thessalonians, there's, there's uh, questions about, wait a minute here, what about this day of the Lord? There's some confusion about that, and uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, right after Jesus ascended that they're, they're, they're meeting together every day because they thought that Jesus was coming back in a matter of days and, you know, uh, uh, possibly weeks. So they, they definitely didn't foresee the years and centuries and stuff. And so, so we get to this point in history where it's just the, 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 the persecution that John personally endured. I mean, being dipped in boiling oil and, and being exiled and all this stuff. It was just, it was intense. I believe that the reason why that, that this book is given is mainly to show that, yes, things are bad. And I'm going to tell you, things are even going to get worse. But don't worry because I am coming back, okay? I recognize what's happening. I know what's going on. I know what's going on in my churches, but I am coming back and we win. Okay, so I, I think as long as we keep that structure in mind, then we can start looking at, okay, what are all the, the trumpets about and the bowls and all this stuff and all the different visions and things, and we can talk about all those type of things. And there's lots of uh, uh, opinions out there about it, and, and have at it. Just go for it. But just keep in mind what the overall structure of the book is and the goal of the book is, and I think that'll help us keep things in, the, in between the, the guardrails, and that'll be really helpful to us here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, our, our text is actually going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, but I'm going to, I'm going to back up and read chapter 1, 9 through uh, 21st, that way there we get some context, okay? And so let's go ahead and read that. So I'm in Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to read starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, 
Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and then turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I saw him, or when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So we'll stop there. We'll pick up here in just a few minutes here. But let me, let me go ahead and show you this map here. So this is a zoomed out to give you an idea of these seven churches that we're going to be talking about here. You kind of can see where, uh, of course, Italy is over here. Uh, down here is the Red Sea. And you got Israel right here, or just up a little bit more there. And so that's kind of where these churches are at. And, and when, you know, when we read the New Testament, particularly in Paul's uh, journeys and writings and stuff like that, the, you, you'll see for sure uh, Ephesus coming up. And, and to give you a little bit more of a zoomed-in approach, this is where we're talking about geographically in this book. Here is the island of Patmos that John is getting the vision. And then he's going to start in Ephesus there. And there's a reason for that. Is one of them is because it was probably the most important city at that time in this area. But also, if you see, it kind of goes in a, in a clockwise uh, uh, order around. And that was following a postal route. Okay, So that's why the, the churches are in this, in this order is because it's like, take these, these letters to these churches and follow this route. And so, so that's what's happening here. Now, there's some questions that come up in this text here. First of all, is, um, well, who's the son of man that was talking here? Well, that's Jesus. So just so you know, that's Jesus talking here. Um, also, who are the seven stars? Well, in verse 20 of chapter one, we read the seven stars are the angels for the seven churches. Okay, we'll come back to that here in a second. Uh, what are the seven lampstands here? Well, those are the seven churches. Chapter one, verse 20 makes it very clear. Um, but then let's go back to this. What are these angels that we're talking about? And this is where uh, there's there's a variety of opinions and there's not consensus on. Let me give you some of the, the, the main ideas on this. It really stems from that the word, the, the, the word for this uh, in the Greek language that this was originally written in, it can be translated angels, uh, but also it can be translated messenger. And it's used in both ways quite a bit here. So that's where people are trying to make translations. This are trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the main thought here? Some people say, well, this is talking about a guardian angel that oversees the church. Uh, Some people say it's the pastor of the church going to the more human side of messenger. Others people say, well, no, when it says that these are to the angel of the church that we're going to read about, that this is more the personification of the entire church or the spirit of the entire church. 
Uh, others say, no, this is talking about to the messenger that's going to carry the letter to the church. Uh, because obviously, John's on Patmos, and he needs messengers to take these letters to these churches. And so that's what he's saying here. Um, all those positions, they have their own unique set of strengths and weaknesses. Um, if I were to say where do I lean towards personally, my personal opinion on this is that it's the messengers that are taking the letters to the churches. Um, but I could be persuaded, and other people, good men, differ on that, and, and I just don't think the Bible's abundantly clear on that, and I don't think it really matters, to be honest with you. But I just wanted to make sure that if that was a question rolling around in your head, uh, I didn't want that to be distracting to you. But now that I've given you all the options, maybe that's what you're going to think about for the rest of the sermon. I don't know. But uh, I'm just letting you know where I land on that. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background of the church of Ephesus, since that's what we're going to read about here in a second. Uh, we first come into contact with this church in the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 and 20, when Paul begins the church there. It's, it was known to be this, uh, a great church. It's, it's list of pastors throughout the years. You have Paul, Timothy, Onesiphorus, Tychicus, and then according to tradition, later on, even the apostle John becomes the pastor of this church in Ephesus. Uh, we will read about uh, in books of First and Second Timothy uh, as Timothy is leading this historic church, and this church that uh, if you read in Acts 19 and 20, you see the, the, the love that they had for the Apostle Paul and how he had with them. It was unusual for Paul to stay as long in his journeys as he did in Ephesus. He stayed two to three years in Ephesus. That was highly unusual for him to spend that much amount of time in one city. But yet he did in Ephesus. And so this was a, a, a city, a church that had grown very strong and was kind of like the flagship church of the day. And so that's one of the reasons why I believe it's the first church mentioned here. Now, I do need to say this, is that while this letter was written to one church, it was also written for all churches. We're going to see a pattern in these, uh, these letters here as we go through them for the next several weeks here, that there's an analysis, there's an exhortation, and then there's a promise. This is going to happen in every letter to these churches. But they're also always going to end with this a phrase or, or a, a, a variation of the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so it's plural there. So really what this is saying is very clear that while it's written to one church, and so the letter we're going to look at today, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, while it was written to that one church, the idea was, and this is why it was compiled here, is for the benefit of all churches. And so it would do us well many, 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 many years later to look back at what Jesus had to say to this church and all the churches that we're going to study and try to learn uh, from that. So that's some introductory background as we're plowing through with this new sermon series. We're going to look at uh, each of these churches here over the next several weeks. Let me read Revelation 2, 1 through 7. We'll pray and then we will dive in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden, standal, golden lampstands. So he's basically saying here, these are the words of Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and, and do the works you did at first. If not, I, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to pause now as we've read the text, made some introductory remarks, framing the discussion. Father, I pray now that uh, your word would minister to our souls, God. I, I pray your spirit would use your word to, to guide us and to, to humble us and to uh, make us a people who are, are more like Christ. And so, Father, I, I pray that as I, I have the, the privilege of communicating here now, that I would do so led by your spirit and that it would be uh, accurate to what this text is saying. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity for us to gather together and for us to uh, discuss this text. And we pray that you would guide us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So we have, uh, first of all, Jesus' analysis of the church at Ephesus. I told you there's this pattern, the analysis, the exhortation, and the promise. And so if you've got an outline there, you already know some of your blanks. But uh, uh, Jesus' analysis of the church at Ephesus. And so, first of all, we're going to look at the good here. So we see here, as he mentions a few things here, he says, I know your works, in verse 2. And I just want to pause for a second there. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging that Jesus... So, you know, talk to a church. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. And, and, and here's what we can take from that church is that Jesus knows his church. And so he knows us here. Jesus is not this God that we serve that is distant, that has no idea what's happening and no idea of what's going on in these congregations. Jesus knows what happens in our church, okay? And you think, well, yeah, of course I know that. No, no, I want you, I want you to think about that for a second there. Jesus knows knows about our conversations. Jesus knows about what we do in our community. Jesus knows of how we show love and compassion to one another. Jesus knows of how we attempt to worship him. Jesus knows all of these things, right? It's not just this, he's got all these different you know, entities out there, and then he just is like, well, I kind of hope they're keeping up with the mission or something. No, he knows what we are doing. And so when we're singing, he knows that. When we're giving, he knows that, right? Okay, when we're gathering at the table, he knows that. When we're studying the word, he knows that. When we're meeting in a small group, he knows that, right? When we're reaching out to our neighbors, he knows that. Whatever we're doing, Jesus knows these things. And, and on one hand, it's incredibly encouraging, but it also should be, should be uh, 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 raise the accountability factor as well. He says, listen, I know your works. I know what you're doing. And so sometimes when we do something, in secret. Sometimes when we do something and no one else notices, and when you're serving faithfully, right, you're serving in your ministry faithfully, and no one has said thank you for so long, I want you to look at this text here. I want you to see, but Jesus is saying, I know your works. I shared on Facebook last week a story of I think it was last week, my days run together, but of how I was listening to a song about Psalm 8, 
And every time I listen or I, or I read that psalm, my mind goes back to a basement in a church in Warren, Michigan, where I sat there and they had the accordion dividers in the basement, right? You, some of you remember these things, right? And so they pull these things out and they made up little classrooms there. And I remember being in the fourth grade boys Sunday school class and sitting in a circle with probably four to six other boys, fourth grade boys, sitting in there where the teacher would, it wasn't even part of the curriculum, but he, he wanted us to memorize Psalm 8. And he would go over the psalm with us, and, it, and we would memorize it, and he would just talk about why it was a good psalm and why we should know this and everything. And, and what I shared on Facebook is, I don't remember a single thing about the teaching curriculum that year. But what I do know is I had a teacher who said, Psalm 8 is important, and you need to know it. Now, I don't know if that teacher ever got any commendation for that. I don't know if the teacher, anyone ever said thank you to him for that. But I do know this. Jesus knew his works. And so if you're ministering and you're, 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 you're trying to serve people and you feel like no one's noticing and it's getting discouraging and it's getting, someone's like, why am I even still doing this? I just want you to look at what Jesus says here to the church and says, I know it. I know it. I know your works. He says, I know your toil here in verse 2. These, this church here, this Ephesus church, this was not a lazy church. This was a church that was working hard for Jesus Christ. I mean, this word toil here has the idea of physical, emotion, and even spiritual work to the point of exhaustion, right? I mean, so this was not a lazy church at all. This was a church that was working incredibly hard and sacrificing great amounts of time and energy for the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, I know your patient endurance here. This was someone who would not get discouraged and quit easy. This church was known to keep going and to, to continue on serving God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances here. I know how you test for sound doctrine, is what he says here. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You see, Paul had warned the Ephesians church back in Acts chapter 20 when he was leaving he said, listen, guys, and he brings the pastors together, brings the leaders, and they're weeping, and they're crying because they know they're not going to see him again. It's a very moving text if you read that in Acts 20. And so Paul says to them, he says, listen, you need to be careful because false teachers are going to come. They're going to come. And you need to be careful. You need to be watching for that. This church took that seriously. From what Jesus commends of them here, we know that they took Paul's words very seriously. And they said, listen, we're going to be very concerned about doctrinal truth. And we are going to compare to what people say with the pages of Scripture. And if it doesn't match up, then we're going to have, we're going to have an issue. These are people that worked very hard and tested for sound doctrine. They were ready for false teachers to come. Paul had said that was going to happen. It did happen. Jesus says they've tested them. People call themselves apostles. They're not found to be false. Later on, we can see it says that they, in verse 3, I know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is the idea that they were being persecuted for following Jesus Christ. And so when, when, when Jesus is writing to this church at Ephesus, he is giving all this 
commendation here. And if Jesus were to write to our church and he would to list these things and say, listen, I know your works. I know you've been working hard. I know you've been enduring patient. I know you've been standing for sound doctrine. I think we would be so grateful to hear those words from Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, as you know, Jesus had more to say. So it wasn't just the good, but there was also the bad here. And the bad was this. The bad was that he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So what is this love he's talking about here? Well, it's all encompassing. I mean, some people, they want to say, well, no, this is only love for God. And some people, no, it's love for people. No, it's love for the world. This is love for each other, all this stuff. Um, the point is, though, is that it's general for a reason, Right? is because that Jesus is saying here, Jesus says, listen, you have sound doctrine. You know what you teach. You know what is right. But yet, but yet, by your actions, you're not showing that it's coming from a heart of love for me. It's not showing that you have a love for each other in the church. It's not showing that you have a love for the community here around you. And basically what Jesus is saying is you've become like the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew doctrine, right? The Pharisees, they knew what they should believe, and they had that down and everything, but yet they just didn't care about people around them, about Christians, about the world. They didn't even have a a love for God. And so here we have that, that this is what Jesus is saying. He says, all these great things, all these good things that you're doing, he says, but nevertheless, I have this against you because you, you've abandoned this. So as I've thought about how that this applies to us, I mean, there's so many ways that we can make the application to us. You know, I, I am proud to be part of a church that is as old as we are, right? If you don't know, our church started in 1855, okay? That's a little bit older than Wayne, okay? All right? So, you know, we've been around a long, long time, okay? And... Um, Boy, there's been a lot of things. I love reading through the historical documents of our church. I was looking for one quote, and I, and I, I just didn't locate it in, in my files in time, but it talks about how that uh, in one of the minutes it says that we just, the church is growing in its love for the Word in both the Sunday school time and in the service. It was just a, it was a great quote. I, I'm, I'm grateful for all the things that we've accomplished over the years. Now, if you were to think of how many people have come into this church since 1855, right, and have been part of this and have been serving Christ in this, you think about even the buildings that we have here of how many hours of people sacrifice for this and, and all the conversations in the community. And one of the things I was thinking about was our missions, right? I mean, one of the things I, I, I loved about when I came to this church in 2013 was that there is a, a desire to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And so what I did was, just out of curiosity, I said, I'm going to go through, since I've been here, just, just in the eight and a half years or so that I've been here, I'm going to look at our annual budgets, and I'm going to see how much did we budget for foreign missions. And when I added it all up, I came that we budgeted uh, $446,000, uh, over $446,000 for foreign missions or for missions in our church. And that's what we just budgeted. Every year, we spent more than that. And that does not include... That does not include like all the special things we've done for like India and things like that, the Bibles and the computers and things like that. I, I mean, I am just incredibly grateful. I know that if we say, hey, we've got some missionaries that need some help, man, this church 
always rises to the occasion. And praise God for that. I'm so grateful for that. And so when I look at just in eight years, we've, we've spent more than a half a million dollars on four emissions alone. You think about you times that over the course of our entire lifespan, how much money has this church sacrificed and given for four emissions? I, I don't even know. It's just, it's amazing. And I'm just incredibly grateful for that. And God has been pleasing, and people have sacrificially given and given out of a, you know, a worship and a love of Jesus Christ, I believe, to do that. Think about the doctrinal stand. I meant to bring it with me. It's in my office here, but um, I have a document in there from 1935. There's a document there that it, it lists of one of the reasons why, and, and it, it's the argument that they were bringing to the church of why we should leave what was known as the Northern Baptist Convention at that time. Um, later become known as the American Baptist Convention. But uh, if you know anything about that era in the 20s, the late 1800s it began, and into the teens and then into the 20s, and it really culminated in the 30s, there was a, a, a move theologically away what at that time was called modernism, okay? Now, what that meant was it was... Um, uh, questioning whether or not miracles were true, questioning the inspiration of the scripture. Uh, there was even lectures and teachings about the conversion of Jesus Christ. Okay, figure that one out. I mean, we're talking about terrible, terrible doctrinal heresy that was happening. And we were part, our church was part of the Northern Baptist Convention. And in 1935, our church said no more. In 1935, our church says we need to stand on the sufficiency of Scripture. And the Bible teaches that miracles happen. The Bible teaches that God created this world. The Bible teaches that we can trust Him. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And we will not move from that position. And they moved and left the Northern Baptist Convention over those issues. I am proud of that heritage, that we have this. And this is, this is what I'm so grateful for. But Here's, here's my concern, though, as I look at the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus. You know, we can be proud of our history, and we should certainly learn from our past, but what we must not do is ride on the coattails of our history. Meaning, what I mean by that is that, that, you know, yes, we stood for truth, and yes, we've been generous, and yes, all that, but just make sure that we don't just say, yeah, we did that, and we're not doing anything today, right? Let's just make sure that, that we, we don't just rest on our reputation like the church at Ephesus did, I believe. Is that, no, 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 today we need to be serving Christ. No, today we need to do so out of love for him. And, and when you give those missions dollars today, when you give, it needs to be out of love for Christ and love for people to the ends of the earth, not just to keep up with the program or, okay, we got to meet budget or something like that. When we give, it should be out of worship to the Lord and say, okay, I, I give this to you because I, I love you. And so if you give on Line, that's wonderful. Just make sure there's some type of worship attached to that, okay? And so whenever you see the statement come out on your bank or something, stop and pray and say, God, I give this to you. We give this to you out of worship of who you are and we love you. If you drop something off in the offering box, take a second to say, God, this is out of love for you. Please don't take giving or don't reduce it to bill pay, okay? All right, let's be more generous. Let's make sure that we're loving. I'm just using that as an example, right? Okay, uh, when it comes to what we're standing for truth and we're holding on to biblical truth and we say, no, I, the Bible says this. Yes, we need to be firm in that, but we can't do so at the expense of, of, of a lack of love for God and for each other, right? 
And we have different opinions on how some of this plays out. I get that. But the point is that it must be, it must be motivated about our heart attitude towards God and towards one another. So this is Jesus' analysis. And I wonder if he were to write a letter to our church, I wonder what he would say about us. I wonder if he would say something similar to the church of Ephesus. You have stood for truth. You, you, you sacrificed. You worked hard. But I wonder if he would say, but I do have this against you. You've left your first love. We have more to talk about that probably, but let me move on. There's an exhortation though. So there's an analysis, the exhortation, and then there's a promise. This exhortation that he has here, three words or three ways that we can look at this. First of all, he says, I want you to remember. He says, remember here in verse 5, therefore from where you have fallen. We are so prone to forget, are we not? He says, I want you to look back and I want you to, to, to remember the things that you did. I want you to remember the, the, you know, how you operated and the joy and the things that, and the, the unity and the love that surrounded those, those events. When I was a kid, I, I, remember, I remember going to Sunday night church every Sunday night. Uh, I remember, you know, we'd go home and after church uh, on Sunday morning, we'd eat lunch and then we would, we, you know, do whatever we needed to do. We were playing or whatever. I remember often asking mom, you know, hey, we're going to church tonight. She's like, yeah, yeah, we're going to church tonight. I remember one time, you know, I said, hey, we're going to church tonight. And, and then I remember her saying it at one point, she's like, why do you ask me this every Sunday? We go every Sunday, you know, why do you keep asking me this, you know? I was like, oh, I guess, you know, hadn't noticed the pattern over eight years, but yeah, okay, all right, all right. So, you know, um, it makes sense now that you pointed it out. Thanks, Mom. But um, so we would just go, right? We would just go and show up. I remember singing songs. I remember, you know, we would have special meetings. I, re- I remember we'd have missions conferences, like week-long missions conferences. You remember those? Remember those? Yeah? I remember we'd have like a Bible conference too. Like in the course of a year, we would have a, a week-long session of meetings in the spring. And in the fall, the spring was like the Bible conference. I, I think they actually call it revival meetings then. But, uh, but yeah, we'd have that in the spring. And then in the fall, there was always missions conference. I always loved that because we had these missionaries that would come in and we had special classes. And then I remember they would make food from their countries and stuff. It was really cool, right? I just remember, I remember singing. I remember being with my grandfather, you know, sitting next to, we'd be in, in church together, you know, Sunday, usually Sunday nights more so than Sunday mornings. But Sunday nights, I'd be sitting with my grandfather. He'd be sitting with us. And, you know, I remember, I remember him singing incredibly loud, like so loud. And he was terrible, right? You know, I, I just remember, you know, being like, you know, 10, 11 years old. And he's standing there and he's singing so loud. And it's just like, you know, every verse, you know, you're moving over just a little bit more. And, you know, because I was a tender, I was a little embarrassed by that. But, you know, as I look back on it, I'm ashamed that I was embarrassed by it. You know, you see, these are things that I remember. I remember that about church. And some of you, you're nodding as I'm talking about some of these things. You remember some very similar things. You know, we don't do a lot of that anymore. And um, part of me grieves that. I get it. I get it why. You know, there's reasons why and maybe some good reasons why we don't do some of those things anymore. But sometimes I wonder if we've traded off more than what we've gained. Now, this is not me pining for the good old days. This is not me saying, okay, the point of this message, we're doing missions conferences, we're going back to Sunday night. That's not the point. But the point is, is I do think we need to remember maybe when 
we were operating out of love for God. I'm not equating being in a chair as definitely being love for God. Don't, don't, don't miss my point here. What I'm trying to say, though, is that there was those moments where we would sacrifice and, and we would not feel like going to church or and we would go, but too many times we just don't. Move it out of church attendance, talking to neighbors. I remember you know, being really out of a love for Christ to say, man, I, I want to I witness to my neighbors. I want to talk to them and I want to talk to the people that are around me at work and stuff like this. And so I'd, I'd be working a job and I would just, I'd just have this love for Christ that I just couldn't help but talk to them about Christ in the workplace, regardless of how awkward it was. Boy, I forget that sometimes. It's easy for me just to listen to the excuse that runs through my head, right, of, you know, this isn't really the time. I'm not being paid to do this. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I, I get all I get all that. I, I do. I, I do. And then there's valid things you need to be. I, I, I get all that. But I wonder if we just accepted a lot of these things and we just slowly moved away from where we were, maybe collectively as a church, but where you maybe have been personally. And so I guess my charge today is just, just think about where, where you, your spiritual journey. I mean, can you look back at times and say, yeah, boy, I, I just felt the nearness to God. I had a boldness for him I, I just don't have today. Take Jesus' letter to the Ephesians right now. Just remember. Just remember that. But then he goes on, and then he says, repent, right? He says, he says, remember where you're about repent. And, and, and some people right now, I mean, maybe that's where we're at. Maybe that's where we're at, where, where we just need to repent and say, okay, all right. I, I, I have moved away from loving God. I have moved away from loving someone else. I have, I've, been, I've become kind of consumed with my own thoughts and my, my own wisdom and my own knowledge that, that, that I, I, I fail to see how other people are thinking or, I, or, or what I, I don't know. And I, I'm just trying to, to, to think of, uh, of general examples here of, of how that maybe it's just that we've moved away from what Christ has said here. So repent. You know, this is to repent means to grieve or to turn back. You know, I wonder, I, I just wonder how many times in our lives that we're just moved by our sin, you know? I, I just wonder how many times we're just like, man, he deserves better. And I'm sorry. You know, this, this, is, this is like that publican, remember the Pharisee, you know, just, you know, he was right in doctrine and what he said was true. But then there was the publican that just said, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what I want from my own soul. I miss it. I miss that mark too many times. I'll be the first to admit that. But I'm praying that God gives me a spirit of repentance in that. And I pray the same for you, my friends. That there's just this seriousness about sin. And, and when it's pointed out, they were like, yeah. All right, that we're quick to forgive and we're quick to, to, to repent and quick to say, I'm sorry. And, you know, this is one of the benefits of the Lord's Supper, right? And so, you know, I, I announced last week that, that you know, we're, we're going to a weekly observance of this uh, probably in the beginning of, uh, of October. And uh, uh, I, know, I know it's a surprise because I know some of you are surprised that I wanted to do that. So I shocked you with that. But, um, uh, but the point is, there's sarcasm there if you didn't catch that. But uh, it's been something I've talked about for about eight years. So here 
here, I'm just so grateful because I think that one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I think it's important is because then this is a, a weekly reminder to repent. This is a weekly reminder that what we're saying here is we're saying, okay, we're, we're trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross alone for this. And then we're doing this with my brothers and sisters, right? Okay? And so if I'm going to do this with my brothers and sisters, I need to make sure that, that, that we're okay. And I'm not going to be holding anything against someone else. And, and if, if I've offended them, I'm going to say I'm sorry. You know, those type of things. And, and, and you know, and, and over the years, it's, it's been beautiful. I, I, I've, I've had people apologize, and it's been wonderful. And I've apologized to people, and, and they've forgiven me. And, and, and that's what the Christian life is about. And, the, and, and when we come to the table together, we come in a spirit of unity knowing, okay, if we repent, he forgives. And so, so that's a reminder. And so don't, don't look at the word repentance as such a bad thing. Some people say, you're calling me to repentance. And, and then we start getting these defense mechanisms built up. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is just what the scriptures say for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the table today, oh, this is just a wonderful reminder that whatever sin you've done, Jesus died for it, okay? And, and so you have something you can taste, you can hold, and, and you can feel and say, okay, Jesus died for me. And so, yeah, it, maybe there's some things that you need to get settled with someone else. Maybe there's a family member that you had a fight with on the way to church. I don't know. I'm just guessing here, okay? And so, you know, there's something that you can just lean over and say, you know, I'm sorry. Jesus died for us. And maybe there's things that need to be worked out in the future. I don't know. But the point is, this is just a good reminder, a weekly reminder of what Christ has called us to do. And again, this doesn't mean we have to be agreed on everything, but it does mean we have to be patient with one another, love one another, and be respectful towards one another. And so he says, repent. Repent. But then he also says, um, return. He says, return to work there. I don't know if you saw this. It says, remember, verse 5, from where, from where you have fallen. Repent, and then do the works. Uh, let's see here. Do the works that you did at first. And so basically, we don't need to spend a lot of time in this, but it basically says, get back to work. Okay, you remembered where you were. You remember what, what God was doing in your life. You remember the motivation that you had. You remember the peace that you had. Now repent of it, and then just start it over again. You see, the fact that Jesus is calling the church to repentance is actually a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It shows that he says, hey, you can get back to work here. I'm not going to hold it against you. Remember, repent, get back to work. What is he calling us to get back to doing? Collectively as a church. What is Jesus calling us to get back to doing individually? What, what might he be calling you? And so I, I didn't put any homework slides up or anything this week because I, I just wanted you to be meditating on that big question there. What could Jesus be calling you to be going back to? So there's an analysis, there's an exhortation, but then I just need to mention in closing that Jesus has a promise here. It's a very sobering promise. He says, if not, so if you don't remember, if you don't repent and do the works, I will come to you. I'm in the end of verse 5. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That, that's sobering. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is he says, listen, he says, if things don't change, he says, I'm shutting the doors. He said this to the church at Ephesus. 
This was the flagship church, right? This was a church that had been known for the love for God, been known for all they accomplished. And Jesus says, I'm more concerned, though, about your love for me and your love for each other and your love for the lost. That's what I'm concerned about here. And if you don't have that, I'm shutting the doors. If you don't repent, I'm going to close it down. That's sobering, isn't it? I mean, there's no congregation in existence that is above that right there, including us. It doesn't matter we've been here since 1855. It doesn't matter what we've accomplished. Jesus says, if you don't continue to, 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 to love me, and to, if, if you don't go back to that, if you don't love me and, and love each other, love the world, listen, I can shut your doors. And he doesn't say that in a spirit of like anger, I don't believe, or like I'm going to get back at you. Retribution is the word I was looking for there. He says it and says, you got to stay on mission. Otherwise, we'll shut the doors. And he can raise up plenty of other churches. So my point is this. God is very serious about us following this, what he said here. So that's the negative thing. And so we shouldn't think that we're above such a warning. And yes, we have a rich heritage, but so did the church at Ephesus. But then there's also a positive warning there. He says, after he talks about the Nicolaitans, because he talks, well, yeah, you've also do this, and and they're mentioned in a different letter, so we'll talk about them at another time. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, but if you repent, you can eat of the tree of life, which is just a picture of being forgiven and restored. The tree of life was originally in the garden, and then after the sin, that was blocked by the cherubim, and then later on at the end of Revelation, we're going to see it in, in heaven as well. And so basically what Jesus is saying here says, listen, listen, you repent, you continue on, you go forward, you'll eat of the tree of life, you'll be forgiven, you will have eternity. So this is what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. Repent. Remember, return back to work. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul said, he told Timothy, he says, listen, I want you to watch your life and your doctrine. That should be instructive to us. We should want our theology to be correct and, and, and fight for that. But we also should make sure that, it, that we're living that out as well. Okay? And so... That both need to match there.